Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by Pharmac. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I'm discussing pre-diabetes with Professor Bruce Errol. Clinically, he practices at Greenstone Family Clinic in Manurewa, south of Auckland. In the rest of his time, he is Professor of Department of General Practice and Primary Healthcare at the School of Population Health at the University of Auckland. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you. So today we're talking about pre-diabetes. I wonder if we could start with a definition. Well, in the, there are a variety of definitions, but I think we should stick to the one that's agreed upon in New Zealand. That's essentially uh, a patient who's got an HbA1c between 41 and 49. I guess the issue is when would you do an oral glucose tolerance test? And that would only be in unusual situations of uh, rapid red cell turnover such as an iron deficiency or renal impairment or things like splenectomy. So really the oral glucose tolerance test is, is something that's fairly rare. And for the average patient, we're just interested in their HbA1c. Thanks, Bruce. So in New Zealand, who gets prediabetes and how common is it? Well, it's fairly common. There are different prevalences given for it. But you're more at risk if you're uh, of Maori, Pacific or Indian ethnicity, um, if you're overweight, um, if you're a woman who's had gestational diabetes, that's something you really have to watch out for because you can easily forget that. And uh, people with first degree relatives with diabetes, um, things like polycystic ovarian syndrome and any other cardiovascular risk factor, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, those sort of things, uh, inactive patients. So they're, they're the ones you really have to watch out for. I suppose two people on corticosteroids? Yeah, that, that would be another group, depending on how long they were on corticosteroids for. So certainly you want to watch their uh, HbA1c. So what role does diet have in preventing the progression to type 2 diabetes? And if we're talking about diet, what diet should we be prescribing? Okay. Um, diet has a huge role in preventing uh, type 2 diabetes and um, it's, it's important to make some changes in the diet. A lifestyle uh, are the biggest, uh, like exercise and diet are the two things that require the attention. And basically people recommend a Mediterranean style diet, which is high in olive oil, fatty fish, nuts, seeds, uh, non-starchy vegetables and unprocessed foods. Uh, and coffee's okay. Coffee's been shown in cohort studies, so I was quite relieved when I saw that. Uh, drinking water uh, and occasional alcohol, but avoiding fizzy, uh, sugary, fizzy drinks. So, um, so the Mediterranean diet it would be the standard one. That's the one that's got the evidence behind it. And in terms of trying to get weight loss, uh, the various recommend the um, diabetes prevention study had a seven percent target. But anything between 5 and 15% is important. And, um, and even, even uh, 5 to 7% can have a huge benefit in terms of preventing onset of going on to diabetes. So, um, so that's important. Should we discuss the direct trial for a moment? Yeah, the direct trial is sort of interesting. It's, it's, it's in the slightly more advanced population. So those people, 800 calorie diet, and that was using the liquid OptiFast diet. They managed to get 46% of people out of the diabetic range 
off all medication. In fact, I think the fascinating thing about that study is they had to stop everybody's medication because they knew by having a rapid weight loss, they would perhaps cause hypoglycemia and hypotension. So they stopped all the, all the antihypertensive, anti-diabetic medications. And this persisted for, um, uh, and a year later, um, there was still a significant percent of people who had uh, managed to keep out of diabetes in the high 30s. So those results we may be able to translate over to pre-diabetics. That's right. The, um, certainly the, the high end of the pre-diabetic, I mean the, the, the 45 and above, particularly I think if the trajectory is going up fairly rapidly, uh, and the younger person, because the younger person is going to have more years of exposure. You know, you're probably not going to see a rapid rise in an 80-year-old. But if you've got a 20 or 30-year-old and they're going from 41 to 45 to 49, uh, these people get out of your control very easily. I've seen too many patients. You know, you take your eye off the ball and the next minute they're in the diabetic range. And there's a move today to get people to be more aggressive I guess at that pre-diabetes end and the early diabetes. So in the direct study, people had had diabetes for six years. So you're trying to preserve that pancreatic function, um, get the pancreas working better, um, not against such a huge weight. So um, I think we probably, and I think in time, we're, we're jumping a bit to the future, but I think we're going to have to be far more aggressive with the high end of pre-diabetes. People below 45, if they stay, a lot of people are going to stay there for a long time. I can just think of a whole bunch of my patients who've stayed under 45, and so long as they chug along there, then, um, but I think those ones where, where it starts to go up very quickly, they're the ones we should be chasing and perhaps offering them more intensive dietary therapy. And the good thing about the so-called fast 800 diet is that it's an intense thing for three months. And people seem to be able to keep it up for that period of time. That, that, that's, that's, that's the take home message from that. People can do that. Now, a lot of them will regress, of course, but, and we're going to have to wait and see what the evidence shows. But my pick is there'll be a legacy effect. Those people will have a benefit 10, 20 years down the road through having that, um, that extreme weight loss. Even if they put all the weight back on, they're probably going to benefit downstream. Would be my pick. Now, that, that's where my vote's going. But we have to wait for the, the evidence on that. And is there a role for bariatric surgery, do you think? Well, I, I think so. Certainly it can get people it can get people out of diabetes, as everybody knows. And there's even a move afoot now to try and get it down into the, uh, the teenage population because obesity really is a pediatric condition. By the time you hit adulthood, you've got the extra fat cells and big fat cells, and um, it's, it's getting almost too late with adults. But the direct study would suggest that you can, you can reverse diabetes, even in older people, who are further down the track. But obviously we can't give everybody bariatric surgery. Uh, we could probably offer a good chunk of the population a low calorie diet. We would have to gear ourselves up for that. And the NHS in England is about to do a um, community pilot of 5,000 people. So that'll be a real life test. Having said that, a quarter of the people who, um, the, the direct trial actually took in a quarter of the people who turned up for the study. So it was reasonably generalizable. So moving on to exercise, Bruce, who should we be offering exercise advice and what sort of advice should we be giving them? 
Well, I think exercise and diet advice have to go together. And from my experience, patients quite like being um, instructed to exercise. I think it's a, it's a fun for them thing for them to do. And they like doing it in general. Diet's a bit tougher, I would have to say, in my experience. But the recommendation is 150 minutes of moderate to moderate activity. So that's brisk walking uh, or 75 minutes of um, vigorous activity. And one of the American documents I looked at talked about um, an extra uh, 75 minutes of strength training. So that's doing so that's quite a bit of exercise. It's way, way more than most of us are doing. I mean, really, these days, the only way we get exercise is through leisure. Virtually nobody in New Zealand expends a lot of calories doing exercise. We are a very, um, very sedentary population. We have machines to do everything now. So we're telling our patients to do probably two sessions of weight-bearing exercise a week, plus three to five sessions of cardio. Yeah, to try and get up to the 150 minutes per week. Um, there is a, a, supposedly 75 minutes of vigorous and 150 minutes or, or 150 minutes of uh, moderate. But I think the more exercise you can do, probably the better within reason up to 150 minutes a week, whatever it be. And I suppose we're fortunate in New Zealand that we still have the green prescription. We do. We do, and that's an important thing. I think we should be pushing the green prescription a lot more. I'm certainly, as I get more interested in this diet and exercise stuff, I'm starting to um, to push it. And interestingly, although we as doctors and nurse, nurses and nurse prescribers, we love our drugs, actually the, um, the DPP study showed that diet and exercise were better than metformin. And in fact, after 10 years, metformin stopped having any benefit, but the diet and exercise did. So I love telling the medical students that doctors and nurses are in love with their drugs and devices, but we need to, we need to fall in love with diet and exercise, I think, um, because the, the drugs aren't hugely effective. So Bruce, what are the associated risks with having prediabetes? What should we be assessing our patients for? Well, we probably need to follow the Heart Foundation guidelines and the age at which to assess uh, patients. So if there's no known risk factors, men at 45 and women at 55, Maori, Pacific or South Asian men, men at 30, women at 40, and people with other CVD risk factors or at high risk of developing diabetes, 35 or 45. Um, obviously, um, if somebody's got diabetes, we don't have to worry about pre-diabetes. But I guess the other group is people with severe mental illness, and that's men at 25 and women at 25. And of course, the, the problem with that group is they're never going to look at high risk if you do a risk assessment on them because of their age, if they're young. You have to remember the, the, the cardiovascular risk tables um, probably favor younger people and, 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 and make it, you know, there's more risk for older people. So you probably have to look at the risk factor profile, you know, funny looking lipids, um, pre-diabetes in that group, I would probably try and um, get a lifestyle change. Going to be very difficult with people with severe mental illness because they lead tough lives. They're on drugs that are going to mess up their metabolic situation. Many of them will be smokers. So um, the smoking message probably is, is super important there and trying to get them onto, on, onto a good diet. There's been some really interesting stuff 
on plant-based diets from Gisborne, where they did a randomized trial, not in this population, but in a community population. And they got this community group onto a plant-based diet, and they lost about 10 kilograms on average. So I think, um, I think our interest in these things probably needs waking up a little bit, certainly does in myself. And, um, you know, I, I think we should try with people with severe mental illness. They're, they're entitled to having that, albeit they're going to be a tough group to have to work with. You know, they've often got very difficult social situations. Their lives have sort of shrunk and collapsed. Um, and, uh, you know, they're going to have things like smoking. So. Mm. Absolutely. I think by definition, they just get put into a high category. Yes. Full stop, don't they? Yeah. I guess the issue is when you start doing things like, I, I guess we should be offering general lifestyle, but probably um, more intensive because they live 20, 25 years shorter than the rest of the population. And mortality is, uh, is very short. So as far as ticking boxes and ordering tests, we've got our HbA1c, what other things should we be thinking of? Well, I guess the usual ones um, are ren renal function and lipids. And from time to time, a, a urine sample for microalbuminuria, because although that's apparently quite an expensive test, it is quite a good predictor of cardiovascular disease. And that may change what you want to do with people. Uh, somebody with prediabetes and that, you might want to go in all guns blazing if they had, say, protein in the urine. Uh, and, uh, and, um, and blood pressure, of course, would be the other one. So... So we've identified these people as being increased risk. How do we manage these risks, Bruce? Well, I think, you know, with, with lifestyle and, and or drugs. Um, would you like me to, to say something a little bit about medication? Yeah, what, what yeah. is the role for medication? Um, well, medication is effective, certainly in the short term. Uh, the biggest bang for your buck if, uh, is actually with exercise and diet. And there's a great graph in the DPP study which shows at the three-year mark uh, placebo's top, then metformin, and then lifestyle. They did pretty intense lifestyle there, fairly individualized. Um, other, other studies have done it in groups. But in terms of drugs, the standard one um, is metformin, is the one that's sort of recommended. It's got the most research on it. But I guess the thing is, if you're going down the drug pathway, a lot of people can't tolerate metformin. It's worth trying one of the other ones, because essentially these people are diabetic. And if we remember what Rod Jackson says, there's no such thing as diabetes. It's a continuous curve. So really, when you're getting into the high end of prediabetes, you're thinking this person is sort of diabetic in a funny sort of way. So then you might want to try the acarboses, the um, the vildagliptins or the, uh, the glitazones. So there are some other things. So if they don't tolerate metformin, um, then, then they should try the other things. Um, what I sometimes do with metformin, if people, I start on a low dose and I often start with food because that seems to, you know, the GI things are quite a common problem for people. The other thing with um, metformin is that you have to watch the B12. So, um, so that's an important thing, um, particularly if, you know, they start getting anemia, but um, it's worth doing a screening test every now and again. Part of good diabetes care really is to do a, a B12 and then replace that if that becomes a problem. Fantastic. Thank you, Bruce. So, Bruce, in the groups above, what strategies would be implemented to prevent progression to diabetes and provide health equity in these groups? Well, there's some 
interesting ideas being floated at the moment um, in terms of uh, there's a Tongan group that are interested in looking at a Tongan version of the fast 800, um, 800 calories a day. And I think that's potentially quite exciting. Uh, the problem with the Pacific cultures is, is food is part of the, uh, the social glue. And um, being generous with food and generous portions is being seen to be being generous and honouring the generosity of the hosts. But of course, in terms of diseases like diabetes, it's not such a good thing. So this Tongan group apparently is looking at finding ways of having a Tongan version of the, um, the 800 calorie um, OptiFast diet, which I think would be terrific. I think it would be a lovely sort of local solution um, because it's about, it's about four to $5 a sachet. So for the three sachets, that's about $12, $15 a day. So that's getting up there in terms of cost compared to what you'd pay for food in a family situation. So I think if we can look at some of the uh, low cost things, I think we as a community, we have to start looking at ways of making exercise easy. I mean, I've had patients who've done fantastically well when they could go to a gym and when that ends, they, um, they, they slip backwards. So I think for the sake of the health of our community, I think we're going to have to look at maybe pumping up the green prescription so people can get um, you know, long-term cheaper gym memberships or sports club memberships. Perfect. Thank you, Bruce. So Bruce, we've got our patient implementing a healthy lifestyle, diet, exercise. Perhaps we've started some metformin and we've done all our cardiovascular risk factor things. At what point should we follow them up? Well, I think it's probably quite good to get a HbA1c because they're very cheap to do uh, within six months because that'll give you an idea of the trajectory and whether your treatment's working. And after that, probably yearly if they're looking like they're stable. But if you think there's a, um, a, a sort of adverse trajectory in which it's going up by, um, you know, going up quickly, then you probably want to do it a little bit more closely because you want to try and get them, I think, particularly once they pass the 50 range or the 49 range, that's probably, you know, then you really have to start talking about um, getting, the, getting the weight off if possible and getting the exercise and pointing out to people if they put in some effort at that point, it may it may prevent a lot of things downstream, you know, just a whole lot of health risks. But a lot of people, you know, they they can get away on you if you're not careful. So, absolutely good points. And to conclude our podcast today, Bruce, what would your take home messages be for our listeners? Well, I think the thing is to is to consider that broad range of people, the different ethnicities, uh, the patients who are overweight, the patients who are inactive, the serious mental illness, and the gestational diabetes is the one I think that if you haven't got that coded, it would be, it's very easy to miss and they can slip through the net. So they're essentially got pre-diabetes by definition. They've shown it because they've, they've developed diabetes as part of the pregnancy. Um, I guess a liberal use of an HbA1c and when they get over 45, start um, ramping up your um, clinical intensity, I guess, and diet and exercise are the big ones uh, and or drugs if, if not making progress. But um, 
but certainly and and diet to get some weight loss if weight's an issue. Clearly, if weight's not an issue, they may have one of the other types of uh, diabetes. So you may have to rethink the diagnosis. But um, if uh, if it is a, a type two diabetes, then weight loss will be helpful. Thank you, Bruce. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, please fill in a Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. You'll also find a list of references to the articles we've discussed here today. Thank you for listening.